Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with two very special guests, uh, my friend Taylor from Made Between the Pages and also author Ken Liu. He's, the, he's a Nebula, Hugo, and Fantasy uh, World Fantasy Award winner. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, uh, Steve and Taylor. Yeah. And Taylor, of course, thank you for, for coming along. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, on the, all these interviews. Happy to be here, as always. <laughs> so, Ken, if you can tell us, uh, can you tell us what uh, what is the, Dan the Dandelion Dynasty about? What can you tell us about it? Right. So, um, the Dandelion Dynasty is probably my most um, characteristic work, I would say. Uh, meaning, um, if you like what I do, um, everything that I do, that I enjoy doing is in the Dandelion Dynasty. Um, and if you, uh, if you like it, you probably will like all my other stuff as well. Um, it's just very, very typical of me. Um, what it is, is, um, <laughs> it's very hard to summarize a huge series like this, something that I put a decade of my life into, but I will try. Um, it is an epic fantasy series, um, briefly, um, about a, um, a world called Dara in which um, instead of having wizards performing magic, you have engineers uh, performing miraculous feats of engineering. And engineers, instead of working in an engineering tradition like we have here um, in the real world, um, it's secondary fantasy, secondary world fantasy. So the engineers in this world work with a technology tradition that I call silk punk, uh, which is based on uh, a lot of engineering traditions and materials from classical East Asian engineering, as well as some of the tradition from the Pacific Islands. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what it is. Um, but, you know, if you ask me um, what it's about in a, in a more philosophical sense, I can go on for hours. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> Very well may happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, truly. Yeah, um, one thing that really stands out to me about it is the epic scale of the entire story, right? So um, on my BookTube channel, whenever I try to describe this or recommend the Dandelion Dynasty, I have a hard time figuring out where to start uh, just because there's, there's you can't compare book one to book four. You're in a completely different place. Yeah. Um, and I also found after reading Speaking Bones, when I did the review, I was like, it's good. Like I can't tell you. I can't tell you the characters that are in it. I can't tell you anything because all of it is a spoiler because of how much changes. Yeah. So you know that epic scale was that something you wanted from the beginning? Yeah. Um, so you've actually given me a really good segue and way of, of explaining what it's about um, in a more um, in a less you know. Uh, book promotion descriptive way. All right. So this is what it meant for me. All right. Um, Taylor, the fact that you were having trouble summarizing the darn thing is part of the reason why I invented the term silk punk. Um, I had a hard time describing to people what I was trying to do with this series and what I wanted to write, because um, it is a little bit unusual. It's a little, it's a little bit strange. Um, I hadn't seen any other series like it, and, and it's something that I wanted to do. So briefly speaking, um, it is has always it was always meant to be this epic thing. And the reason is um, I wanted to tell a story about modernity using the tropes of epic fantasy. Um, 
And I wanted to uh, sort of twist modernity a little bit because something about modernity just struck me as very strange and very path dependent and very interesting. So, you know, I've traveled around the world quite a bit as an author and gotten to talk to a lot of people. And one thing that struck me is the degree to which folks from around the world talk to me about the, the, the sense of translatedness in modernity, okay? What I mean is, you know, I talk to folks in South Africa and they say, you know, I grew up speaking uh, the indigenous language of my people and uh, now I'm educated in English. And when I'm trying to talk about things like college, finances, economics, physics, I don't, I can't do it in my indigenous language. I have to do it in English or Afrikaans. Um, it's, it's, it's just very, I have to use the language of a language that is not, whose history I'm not born into, if that makes sense, right? So mm -hmm. there's a sense in which uh, modernity is translated it's it's done this in this other language um and i hear this from folks in asia folks in eastern europe folks in south america africa all over the place right so you would think okay well that's just the consequence of european colonialism so let's talk to folks from europe well it turns out that even us english speakers we may not recognize it but for us modernity is also a translated experience, right? When we speak about physics, chemistry, when we speak about um, uh, economics, these are not native English words. These are not words built on Anglo-Saxon roots. Uh, they're words invented um, in modern times using Greek and Latin roots. So why is that? Why is it that from dating back to the Renaissance, our construction of modernity relies on Greco-Roman roots. That's very strange. It's not mm. It's not what you would expect. And, and we don't interrogate it enough. So even for all of us English speakers, um, even for all of us who are born into or, or acquired the tradition of modernity, native language, if you will, we don't really speak modernity in a native way. We actually experience as a translated experience. So that to me was very interesting. So I like to speak about the way we think of modernity as Greco-Roman punk, meaning we take Greco-Roman roots and reappropriate them to do things that they never they were never intended to do. I mean, if you look at the roots of physics, word physics, chemistry, technology, we ended up using these roots in ways that the Greeks and the Romans never imagined intended. We're using them to do something entirely different. We have appropriated them for our own purposes. Now, to me, this kind of appropriation of tradition, of reappropriation of tradition, of making it your own, of making it do something that the roots were never meant to do, is the very heart of punk aesthetic, which is all about acquiring things that already exist and doing using them for purposes that they never were meant to, um, and and to acquire to create something new out of the stuff that's already there. So I said, okay, what if we can reimagine modernity in a different way, right? Instead of having a modernity in which people go around, speak words that are constructed from Latin and Greek roots, and we talk about the Senate, and we build Washington, D.C. as though it were some sort of modern copy of Rome. It's very weird, right? If you think about that, this is very strange <laughs> that we do this. Um, yes. We just don't 
think about it as strange because we're so used to it. So I said, okay, let's let's do something speculative fiction is really good at, which is to apply a filter on the things that we're already familiar with to allow us to see it anew, to really figure out the essence of something. So I said, I'm going to write an epic fantasy series about modernity, about society emerging into modernity, only instead of a renaissance based on, say, um, Greek and Roman roots. What if I created a society marching to modernity using classical East Asian roots in language, in philosophy, in um, mythology, in technology? What if I take all of those things and reappropriate in the same way that we appropriate Greek and Roman roots and construct our modernity? What if the people of Dara can take these fantasy um, uh, roots that are very much based on East Asian classical traditions and create modernity with it? What would that look like, right? So that's the root of, of this epic fantasy series, um, which is really weird because a lot of times when you write epic fantasy inspired by a particular culture, people think you're really talking about that culture, but I'm not in the same way that when we speak about technology, physics, chemistry, we're not talking about Greeks and Romans. We're talking about modernity. We're just using those roots. When I write about Dara, I'm not interested in talking about classical China or classical Japan or um, the, the roots are taken from there. But the story I'm really interested in telling is modernity. So if you can imagine, it's sort of a reimagining of the story of modern America, modern Canada, modern Australia, filtered through the lens of a classical East Asian mythological tradition rather than a Greco-Roman one. That's the way I think about it. Um, and of course, you know, because I worked for many years as a technologist and as a lawyer, um, law and technology feature very prominently in the series. So instead of doing fantasy magic, I have a lot of uh, technology in the sense of both material culture and in terms of social engineering. Um, and that's where all the magic happens. And that's where, you know, this emergent version, vision of modernity um, plays its role as the core mythology. Um, and I had so much fun doing this. Uh, so I hope that comes across. I mean, I had so much fun inventing these things. I mean, it's like I'm inventing alternative modernity. Um, and, and I'm just having a great time having people build awesome machines, inventing new philosophies and government systems. Uh, and I put all of that in there. And the hope is that, you know, the joy that I, I had in inventing also comes across to readers. Uh, and of course, you know, fundamentally, no matter how big your grand ideals, all these stories fundamentally have to be boiled down to individual characters. So in the same way that, you know, um, Paradise Lost might be about um, justifying the ways of God to men, but ultimately it's about the story of Adam and Eve as individual human beings. So similarly, you know, the Dendron dynasty might be about a society marching into modernity, but ultimately it's about Gia, it's about Pharaoh, it's about these individual characters who must make sense of their own lives in this time of transformation. So mm. long-winded answer, but that's what this is about. And that's why it was epic. It sheds a lot of light on why the first book is so different from the fourth book, because in essence, it's the change, right? Yes. And um, and that's actually, it's interesting that you say that you have to experience these larger 
grand scale things through the lens of characters because I'm a very character based reader. So this is something I'm aware of whenever I'm reading that mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's the characters that are getting me connected to the story. And I know um, Steve had, a, had um, we had some questions submitted from other people and a general thing that I just hear about your books is how good your character work is. Thank you. Just how that is what really draws people into the story. And I'm, hello, that's me too, I'm part of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. so uh, for you, I think, well, Steve, I don't wanna steal your question, but I think you yeah. had one on there about what makes, for you, what makes a good character? Mm -hmm. What makes them so dynamic, you know, for all of your readers? Like, what are some, what are some main tenets that you hold? Yeah, so um, there are probably two things that I always keep in mind when I'm writing uh, characters or creating characters. One is that um, humans are complicated and contradictory. So characters can't be too neat. If they're too neat, they come across as just very flat and one dimensional. Now, when you're writing fiction, it's actually okay to have a lot of flat characters. You don't have to make every single character fully three dimensional because a lot of times we encounter folks in a specific role and we know them only in that one aspect so if that's the only context in which we know them and they come across as flat that's okay i mean you know somebody a great novelist like dickens was famous for writing tons of flat characters who were still vivid and important um you you, you can't have everybody in your novel be david copperfield you, you've got to have <laughs> you know the, the other flat characters to make that work um so so similarly, you know, I, I keep that in mind. But when I'm trying to write a three-dimensional character, I try to remember that they are internally contradictory. And in fact, that kind of internal contradiction, the set of conflicts that you have, the, the, the fact that your actions fall short of your ideals, the fact that you may be a hypocrite, the fact that you're not sure what the right thing to do and you say one thing, but you're also you also believe something else, that's very realistic in the way that we are internally torn. And so I try to write characters that are not too neat, that are torn in this way, that makes them relatable, that makes them realistic. The other thing I keep in mind is now, um, because as I mentioned earlier, the story of the Dunsan Dynasty is about modernity, right? The first book is very different in style from the subsequent three books because the first book in some ways serves as that primer of the set of legends and historical antecedents I'm drawing on, whereas the, th the other three books are about the Renaissance equivalent, if you will, right? So you have the legends and the classical past and you have the Renaissance in the next three books. But as part of that, because I'm talking about modernity, um, I wanted to, I realized something, um, the way to make these characters feel realistic and deep and real for a modern reader is to remember what is the essential experience of modernity, which is a sense of disruption, of loss, of transformation, of change. Um, now, I'm not claiming this is exclusive to modernity. Certainly, we've had lots of characters from antiquity who were going through transformation, disruption, and so on and so forth. But my argument is that the quintessential experience of being a modern person is the sense of disruption, right? Now, if this is psychological, it's not based on historical facts necessarily. So I'm, I'm making an argument based on the psychology of it. Part of the psychology of how we experience modernity is the sense of disruption of loss. We 
we now take it for granted that the way we live our lives will not be the way our children live their lives and that the way we live is not going to be the same, isn't the same as the way our parents live, that every generation will experience tremendous change, disruption, and, 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 and just transformation. In fact, we now take it for granted that within a single lifetime, we will transform into multiple roles. We think nothing of the fact of moving across the country. Sometimes we across borders. We think nothing of growing up in the hills of West Virginia and then ending up at Yale and then becoming, you know, it's just, we, do, we, we just think nothing of it. That's just mm -hmm. what everyone is expected to do. In fact, the, the sort of life that we used to live where we can gain a lot of wisdom from the experience of our parents and know that the way she, our mother, you know, did it is the way we will do it and, and, and so on and so forth. We don't, that kind of experience is growing more and more scarce. It still exists, but it's getting to be less and less so. Um, because we take for granted that there will be fundamental changes and that we will just migrate between different spheres and experience this kind of disruption of loss of creating new roots when we are uprooted. Um, my characters in the Danzan dynasty experienced the same thing. Now, if you remember, if you notice, um, Taylor and Steve, the main characters I write about and focus on, they're all characters who undergo this kind of major transformation in their own lives. They are ripped across borders. They migrate across social classes. They start out thinking their lives will be one thing, only to be told that, nope, your, your life has a completely different plan for you. Uh, that mirrors the modern experience. And, and that's why, because I focus on that psychology of disruption, of change, of radical acceptance, of adapting to your circumstances. That, I think, is another reason why my characters feel real and relatable, because it is the sort of transformative experience they undergo is very similar to the kind of experience we all go through ourselves. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I, well, I promise I'll let Steve get a word in edgewise oh. in just a moment. But what you said, it connects to one of the things that resonated with me the most about the entire series. Because as someone who lives in Japan, I moved from uh, the States to Japan mm -hmm. almost six years ago now. My husband is Japanese. And so I live kind of in that liminal space you're just discussing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And often, you know, it's hard to describe where home is anymore because exactly. it's become so there's so many places that fit that description at this point <laughs> and so many people that do right so uh that kind of discussion of how a person can belong to two places at once and cultural exchange combined with the way that you talk about language because i was also a linguistics major in university and i'm just i'm just a linguistics nerd in the way that i think you've mentioned in other interviews you love um engineering right to that mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm, same degree mm -hmm. um and you also do translation right of mm -hmm. um what is it uh earth's uh the remembrance of earth's past right mm -hmm. you're translating that work so uh for me, the power, clearly the respect and the awe you have for the power of words combined mm -hmm. with cultural exchange, which happens in good and bad ways, you know, mm -hmm. which is very realistic. It's messy. It's very, very messy. And mm -hmm. uh, thank God it's not always as messy as the wall of storms, <laughs> but sometimes it is that messy. Mm -hmm. um, 
that was a theme that just really struck me as a reader, probably because it hits close to home, right? Um, so I guess I'm trying to think if I had a question in there somewhere, but my point is that what you just discussed <laughs> is one of the themes that I think stands out. You know, you say that you hope it it shows to your readers that you enjoyed writing the series, mm -hmm. and I can say mm -hmm. it really does, especially in those themes, because it's just perfection. It described, you know, my experience to a T. It, it's it's also the case, Taylor. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and and mm. the one thing I do want to also um, mention for readers is that um, we always think that certain experiences are some, somehow unique or rare when in fact it's not. I mean, now, not everybody gets to experience the kind of drastic cultural shift that you do when you're moving across the Pacific Ocean to Japan or, you know, you know, or, or people who have to migrate across borders and become immigrants in another nation or learn a whole new language. I mean, those are major, big disruptions. But all of us, even if we don't do that, experience that kind of disruption to a lesser degree. I mean, it's different in degree, but it's it's still very similar. I mean, all of us go through the experience of, you know, when you grow up, you think, life is basically the way you live on your street with your parents and your friends. And then you get to go to high school and you see how things are quite different. You get exposed to a lot of people that you cannot imagine before. And then you go to college and you're going through another major cultural shift. I mean, now you, you hear people from all over the world and you're like, wow, you know, I, I really was very, um, the world I lived in was very small. And then you go on the internet and you know, Every day you're shocked by the sort of things that you see. And it's just that kind of constant disruption of, of having to accept that um, the human capacity for invention and new cultures and new languages is endless and that you have to just adjust and, 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 and go with it. And, and sort of, like you say, you know, this experience of learning new cultures, of encountering new peoples, of encountering new ideas is messy. It's not always the bright-eyed, you know, everything's wonderful um, that you think. Certainly um, not. <laughs> no, no. And it's, it's something that you have to question about yourself. I mean, oftentimes, another thing that we've all experienced is it's not until you've left home that you now try to, to understand what home actually is. And it's not until you're, you've left the place that you start to actually understand it. Um, and, you know, certainly a lot of folks who have had to learn a new language gain a new appreciation for their own language once they are immersed in another linguistic community, right? That that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's also, I think, a very big part of what it means to be a modern person, the sense of home being, having multiple meanings of not knowing quite, answer, quite how to answer the question, where are you from? The older you are, the harder that question is to answer. Um, and, and the harder it is to, 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 to even say what your identity is. I think modernity is about forcing everyone to construct their own identity, to no longer accept and take it for granted these very easy labels that nation states force on you and tradition and um, prejudice uh, try to box people into. Uh, the modern, the quintessential modern experience is this idea of transgressing, crossing of of transforming um, across boundaries. And it's, it's again, you know, to, to, in some ways, it's kind of fun for me to realize that this is not um, something new, right? At the same time, it's very modern, and yet at the same time, it's also very ancient. Uh, 
um, metamorphosis, this idea of transformation is a very key part of Latin uh, uh, literature and primarily written during the time of um, the Augustan height of Roman of the Roman Empire. And that period was in many ways a precursor to modernity. It's about bringing all these cultures into one. It's this sense of exposure to all the new things and how your life today is not at all like the lives of your grandparents. You know, the, the, the Romans at the, the time of, um, of Augustus experienced something like it. Uh, and that's why the literature of the metamorphosis is so prominent and so important to us. Uh, to them, um, and and we're sort of going through it too. Um, so if you want to be sort of um, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying this in a very serious way, but there is some truth to it. My the the, the works that we all enjoy now are also works about metamorphosis, and and you could say that all of us are behaving like Ovid in some sense because that kind of transformative experience is our reality. Um, we are seeing ourselves change. Um, we're seeing everyone around us change. We're seeing the world change and transform day to day in a way that um, makes us feel uh, both excited and also a little bit scared, right? It's, it's unsettling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And you mentioned social media. How has social media changed how we perceive our identity or identities of anyone else? Oh, such a great question, Steve. Um, I've written a lot of, um, no, not in the Dunbar Dynasty, because um, thank God that's a world that doesn't have social media yet. Um, but I've oh my God, can you imagine if Sarah had social media, it'd be over. Gia, oh my God, world ending. It will be world ending. Um, uh, the, um, I, I have written extensively about social media in my short fiction. And I think social media is just deeply fascinating. Um, I, I it's it's interesting the degree to which you know folks of our generation had to learn to navigate um, how to speak social media and how to um, construct a multiplicity of identities on social media right we it's not natural to us i mean we've had to adapt uh lessons learned from the real world to it i mean it's true that historically we've always code switched and played roles in different spheres that we're in you the way you speak to your friends from your hometown is very different from the way you speak to your professors at college and very different from the way you speak to your supervisor at work and 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 your clients and 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 your you know in-laws you adapt a different code when you speak to all of them um but social media makes that like 10 times more intense um the way you present yourself on twitter is often completely different from how you do it on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and oh, no, how... the trigger for Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how you are on something like Snapchat is very, very different from how you have to make TikToks, right? It's, it's just very different. These, these you, you end up being a very different person. And we've had to learn to do it. And I find it fascinating because all of us are not really digital natives. We weren't born at the time when these things were already in the air. And then I watch my children doing this, my daughters navigating this and the way they grow up with this stuff. And they just, they intuitively know how this works. You know, 
the fact that I just find it deeply fascinating that that you know Facebook, the platform and the company is moribund, right? Because you know I, I read this thing Washington D.C. where they talk about memes, and they're like, you know, memes originate from these very dark forums, you know, 4chan or whatnot, right? That's where the memes come out of. And then they they get shared around on TikTok and, and whatnot. Now, by the time they come onto Instagram, they're already very old, right? By the time they come onto Instagram, mm -hmm. it's because the cool people are no longer using it. Like that's mm -hmm. when it's already the not millennials so cool. have gotten a hold of it <laughs> right, at that right. point. <laughs> but by the time it gets to Facebook, oh my God, that meme might as well be dead. You know, this is like mm -hmm. three day old fish by the time it appears on Facebook. <laughs> and to me, it's just very funny because I'm like, I remember when Facebook was the hot new thing. I remember mm -hmm. when Zuckerberg invented the darn thing and you had to have like a special email address to even join. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the hoi polloi are not even allowed in. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you had to be special. And, and, and to think that in less than like, you know, a decade and a half, Facebook is now like where the ancient stuff goes. <laughs> it's just yeah. very funny to me to see that. Um, yeah. and, and then I think about what does that mean for our identity, you know, like, you know, so for those of us who grew up Facebook, with Facebook, in some ways, that is, you know, our defining platform, that is our feature. Um, and and uh, what does that what does that mean? You know, I mean, some of us end up migrating to other places, like my wife is great with Instagram and, and um, but neither of us will ever touch TikTok. You know, it's just like, yeah. it's kind of interesting to see how, how much we can migrate and how much we're sort of stuck. Um, to me, it's just endlessly fascinating to imagine how these are transformations of identities and, and how my daughters will also one day be ancient grandmothers and they'll reminisce about the days when, you know, TikTok was the great cool thing. <laughs> yeah. what that will be like it's anyway it's it's funny to me to think about this coming from an era of myspace where you had to change your song on your page to oh, yes. indicate your mood right. <laughs> you know that was a shock for me when i went to facebook i was like what do you mean i can't put a song on here you know <laughs> so that was a it's a perfect example of like the platform you're on changes the way that you present yourself because i could Absolutely. no longer express my fight with my boyfriend through an angry mm -hmm. song, you know, mm -hmm. I had to mm -hmm. type mm -hmm. it in there. Mm -hmm. So and and remember the days when you had uh, AOL Messenger oh, uh, oh and, and, you, and you had to set your status. Do you remember those days? Mm -hmm. oh, oh my yeah. god! <laughs> yep, you had to you had to sit and think of the perfect like lyric or witty joke so people would know you were funny when you were gone. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Oh boy, those are big decisions. <laughs> they were. Yeah. Is it's part of that sense of identity that we we, we have on social media. Part of why it's uh, a, has those addictive qualities. Is that part of why it's addictive? I, I think social media is addictive mainly because it's it's hijacking all of the evolutionary um, pathways we have for building cohesive social units and using them for something cheap and artificial and virtual. Right? We evolved in um, environment where um you know having the approval of the 200 or so people in your little tribe is literally a matter of life and death like if you pissed off someone in your little tribe like that that is very very bad like that is a 
that is a thing that will cause you to die. Um, so we are super anxious about not being liked. And, and But today, the stakes of that are very little. I mean, if somebody on Twitter screams at you and, and calls you a name, so what? Nothing happens. But our emotions have not evolved to be able to discount it that way. We still, in some ways, live in the days when you know, somebody coming to your face to scream at you like that is a major deal. It's a major disruption to the tribe's peace and a major threat to everybody's survival. So our anxieties are huge. And similarly, you know, being complimented and, and forming a bond with someone like a real bond is also super important. Friendships, um, uh, you know, romances and all kinds of bonds that you form with people around you. These things are, you know, very sense you you don't live just inside your brain you are also defined by all these relationships you form with people we are you know a social species that large parts of our brains evolve to read other people's expressions and to interpret their moods and emotions and to mirror their um theory their their mental processes in our own heads we are obsessed with other people we love to gossip we're born to gossip uh it's so important um and now all of those nice little you know uh, neurotransmitter pathways to reward us for being social are being used uh, on facebook and twitter and all these things for stupid little things like somebody click on your like i mean you know we evolved on the thing where we're trying to engineer the perfect little tweet so we can get as many likes as possible and if people are not liking it we've all behaved like high school versions of ourselves and going like what's wrong you know why don't people love me um <laughs> It's, yeah. it's really scary how the degree to which this kind of artificial fake um, social um, signaling and connection is being um, is tapping into real emotional pathways and manipulating us. Um, and, and I get bothered by, by it a lot. And, you know, I've often said how um, artificial intelligence has shaped the way we think about picture taking, the way we think about video production, the way we think about music, and, and it's transformed the visual arts in a lot of ways, but it hasn't really changed the way we write stories. And I wanna caveat that by saying that, while it's true that novelists to this day still work pretty much the same way that Dickens and Jane Austen wrote their books, um, it's not true that AI has had no role in the stories that we tell ourselves because AI has played a huge role in social media and in the feeds that we see and manipulating um, what content gets what kind of reward. So the kind of social story we're telling ourselves is AI mediated and it's heavily machine mediated in a way that we haven't really figured and understood and thought through, you know, in the same way that the way photography and film transform the way we visually imagine the world. It's something that film theorists still talk about and something that we are still working through. Social media is transforming the way we think about our relationships, that we tell our collective story, that we, the way we imagine um, who we are. And it's all heavily machine learning slash AI algorithmically mediated. And we just haven't thought what that means. I mean, you know, talk about like real national security issues. I feel like the algorithms that TikTok uses, the way that Facebook uses, the way YouTube uses to recommend content or not, these are really national security issues. We really need to think very carefully and examine them to see um, what they're doing to us. 
um, our collective, you know, story is being reshaped. Um, and we sort of, we're just sort of like letting it go and not paying attention. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting that these algorithm, these algorithms that are re rewiring our brains and uh, this can be a security uh, or a national security threat. We're feeding these algorithms with voluntarily feeding these algorithms. So we're, we're feeding mm-hmm. the own. Our it's own crazy. Group. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. it's wild. It's, it's I mean, really how many crazy. Times have you been recommended a video, you know, on YouTube? You're like, how did it know I wanted to watch that? <laughs> and then yeah. you watch it. And yep. then there you go. That's how it knew. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, we're arguing over whether, you know, there are trolls who are manipulating our election. Uh, of course, the election is being manipulated by the algorithm that is running Facebook. I mean, how can you question that? That's not happening. I mean, um, it's, 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 it's really shocking the degree to which we sort of are just saying, oh, people still have their own free choice. Yes, but... To a large degree, the story we're trying to experience and tell ourselves is now being mediated by the machines, and we really have to um, uh, uh, get more transparency and, and more understanding into what that is. We can't just let it be a black box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, I heard you, you've mentioned before, just going back to kind of your works that you've put out into the world, Dandelion Dynasty is is billed as an epic fantasy, but it's kind of like a cross genre thing. It kind of has sci-fi vibes as well. Yeah. Uh, not to call, not to call a decade of your life a thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cross genre concept. There we go. Yes. Um, and uh, I know that some of your other like short story collections, which I am so excited to get to, like the Paper Menagerie and everything, those delve very much into sci-fi. Um, and I think there's there's a reason that there's a science fiction and fantasy subgenre. It's called SFF, right? Because these things often are in communication with each other, and there's blurred lines um, between the two genres. Uh, so for you, obviously, you enjoy elements of both. But is there a different way that you approach a story if you know you're going to approach it as a science fiction short story, for example, versus a fantasy story, even if it's a short fantasy story? Is there a different way that you approach it or does it just kind of become what it is in the end? So, so, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're a linguist. So I will, you know, talk about this in, in sort of the linguistic terms, which is that fundamentally, you know, all languages are similar in the sense that they allow humans to express um, mental models about the world. And and there are, but there are differences between languages. Some languages are have much more a set of worn cliches and tropes, if you will, for expressing certain things much more readily than other languages do. You know, in the same way that the Greeks say, for example, I had four words for different types of love. Um, and whereas it's a little hard and, and English because free can mean both, you know, free as in freedom and, and free as in doesn't cost you anything. Other languages have different words for that. And that leads to a certain way in which we allow certain concepts to bleed together that other languages do not. So there are these differences in which, you know, languages are, are incline you towards certain things versus other things. Mm-hmm. Genres are similar. Genres, certain genres incline you towards certain things more than others. And they have baked in certain assumptions about the world that you don't have to meticulously try to establish. 
Um, so for example, you know, sci-fi often has as a fundamental assumption that the universe is knowable. Um, and uh, fantasy often does not necessarily go with that. The fact that the universe is not always knowable is the key assumption for a lot of fantasy. Now, having said all of that, right, now I'm going to make that a little bit twisted by saying that um, I have always been someone who wants, wanted to push that a little bit in the same way that somebody like Milton, who was very in, in love with Latin and Greek, and so when he wrote English, he del deliberately pushed English syntax to do things that English syntax never meant to do. There are parts of Paradise Lost that reads as though he was trying to write English like Latin or Greek. And he was. Um, and so the English sentences come across as deeply unnatural and hard to parse because they were trying to push to do things that they were not meant to do. But that was part of his unique aesthetic. And, and you end up learning to love it. So I also am naturally drawn towards pushing fantasy to do things that fantasy was not necessarily natural for doing and to push sci-fi to do things that are that sci-fi is necessarily suited to doing. I, I kind of like that. So early on in my career, um, I think somebody uh, critiqued my work by saying that the problem with Ken is that he writes his sci-fi as though he were writing fantasy and he writes fantasy as though he were writing sci-fi. I think they meant that as a kind of criticism of some sort. But I actually really enjoyed it. I was like, that is accurate. That is my aesthetic. Um, I enjoy writing English as though it were Latin or Greek, the way Milton did. So I enjoy writing fantasy that has, you know, in the Dunsland Dynasty, I think a character actually explicitly says, the universe is knowable. Um, so it's a core assumption from sci-fi importing to fantasy, which, you know, is hard. Um, a lot of times when I write sci-fi, I will also put in some notion that fundamentally this technology is not understandable. Fundamentally, the world is weird, mysterious, um, enigmatic in a way that isn't reducible to scientific knowledge, uh, which is, you know, challenges a, a core assumption of a lot of sci-fi. Um, I like doing that because I think pushing metaphors to do things that they were not meant to do um, you know, it's it's part of my punkish aesthetic. I like taking things to do things that they were never meant to do. Um, I think that allows you to see certain insights that you can't get otherwise. It's, it's sort of a core part of my aesthetic. Um, and uh, fundamentally, I do think that sci-fi and fantasy are unified uh, by their um, uh, status as literatures, literature um, genres that aim at using metaphors to understand the world. Um, so what I mean is this, both sci-fi and fantasy are really about making aspects of reality that we think of metaphorically real. So metaphorically, we may conceive of say, love makes the world feel more alive, All right? We, we speak of that metaphorically because it's psychologically true. And we know that's not factually true. Um, but in when you're writing sci-fi or fantasy, you can make that literally true. You know, if you're taking the sci-fi approach, you can imagine a story in which um, if you love someone, uh, the social media algorithms will filter your world in such a way that everything feels better. <laughs> it's a subtle way to nudge you into more positive emotions and being more loving towards those around you. So you can imagine that's a literalized that's taking the metaphor making it literally true. Or you can imagine a fantasy approach in which um, a mother's love can make 
paper animals and toys come alive for a child. Um, that's, that's the fantasy way, and that's sort of the assumption behind uh, the paper menagerie, um, you know, not to, uh, um, to spoil it. Uh, but that's sort of the thing I do. I think fantasy and sci-fi are both really about taking metaphorical concepts and making them literally true. So uh, another example is uh, something like Do Androids Stream of Electric Sheep, or better known as Blade Runner. Um, that story is not at all, in my view, about AI robots or any of that. It's, it's not. It's, it's about the alienation we feel in the modern world. Um, we've all had that experience of, you know, we evolved to live with about 200 people in the tribe. But in the modern city, we have to deal with hundreds of thousands of strangers on a daily basis. You get into the subway, you're bumping against these people, you go into, um, into the market, you're passing by people who you will never, ever again pass by. Like the vast majority of the people that you pass on a daily basis are people you will never see again. It's if you think about it deeply, I think our little monkey brains will go crazy if we really thought about <laughs> yeah. it. Um, and so we all now have this sort of illusion that we're the only real people in the world, that most other people are just figments, they're little roles, they're, uh, they're NPC, right, for lack of a better term, right? We all have that experience of, of sort of imagining that only we have rich, deep inner lives, and the vast majority of the people we encounter are mere NPCs and they don't have anything behind them. So what is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's, it's about, can we really tell real humans apart from these, you know, machines that we think inhabit the universe? Can we really tell what is actually, what is a real human being when we feel so alienated from everything around us? Um, so all that talk about empathy, all that talk about connection, that's just Philip K. Dick's way of trying to get us to see this aspect of reality through a sci-fi lens. So I don't really, I mean, you know, my reading of, of Blade Runner is not necessarily um, the one that a lot of people enjoy. A lot of people do enjoy thinking about it as literally about robots and AI and, and, and all that. I don't think it is. I, I think Philip K. Dick in particular is deeply religious and spiritual in the way he thinks about these stories and he uses a lot of religious metaphors. And I think it is about this idea of what is reality what is who is real and um can we figure out some way of talking about the sense of alienation um in modernity using the language of sci-fi so mm -hmm. yeah i mean my deep dark secret is i've never seen blade runner <laughs> so <laughs> i know i know Someday, someday, I run in, right? I run in circles where that is just blasphemous and, you know, <laughs> I should be excommunicated. Uh, it is something that I do want to watch in the future. <laughs> but I think the fact that it's stuck around for so long and has such this like status in the sci-fi world does speak to the fact that it's not just robots. You know, I don't think it's stories... really about technology and robots at all. I don't think it's about, you yeah. know, speculating about the future. I think it's very much about this metaphorical engagement with modernity as we experience it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stories that stick with us stick with us because they have a deeper connection, you know, it yes. can be through metaphor about... through it, something else, but. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. about human nature in some way, these eternal anxieties that we always have. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Well, we need to, you need to watch that movie, Taylor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You read, you read the Grace of Kings and I'll watch Blade Runner. How's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that a deal? Deal. Yeah. Well, I'm ready to right. for that. So yeah.
Uh, okay, so I have work to do. Got it. Yeah, you have work to do, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, before you became a full-time writer, you were you've worked as a software engineer, a lawyer, and a lit- litigation consultant. Uh, I wondered which did you learn any any uh, skills from those jobs that you were able to implement in your writing journey? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, you know, uh, when you're a lawyer, the most important skill you have is storytelling. You have to tell a story. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. That's basically it. I mean. Um, a trial really is just a, a, a battle between competing narratives. Uh, and you see this very clearly when you read judges' decisions, appellate decisions especially. Um, you know, it's always fun to read these court cases. You know, in the Anglo-American tradition, we have this legal tradition of judges explaining their decision and by laying out their reasons. Now, a lot of times, you know, we read these decisions because we're trying to discover what the rationale is what is what is the reason what is the process by which this decision was integrated into the framework of existing law but i read a lot of these decisions because i'm interested in the narrative that's driving this because a lot of times i think now i'm not claiming this is you know this is not a claim that judges are somehow lying or whatever um i have deep respect for judges but i think it's human nature for us to be to make our decisions fundamentally because we are committed to an emotional outcome, to a, to a narrative. And we then use reason to justify that emotional outcome. What I mean is this, um, you take, uh, you know, a Supreme Court uh, case and there will be a so-called recitation of facts at the beginning, which describes the factual background. Um, and they're not actually facts. The facts are arranged in such a way as to tell a story. And when you figure out the story, you know what the outcome is going to be. You can see where the sympathy lies. And if you read the dissent's version, the dissent will often have a recitation of facts as well. The facts are arranged in a completely different way as to suggest a different outcome and a different emotional truth commitment. So that's why I say these are about fundamentally about narrative. They're about which narrative, which story is more convincing to you. Um, and it's not just in the courts, obviously, you know, when you talk about to people about why they support a candidate versus uh, or a political party, we may couch these uh, decisions in terms of rationality of pros and cons. But fundamentally, I don't believe any of that is true. I believe fundamentally we're committed to the story. Um, that the party or the political candidate is telling, whether that story resonates with us and makes us feel like it's the true story, it's the story we want to live. We vote for the story we want to live. That's that's basically it. Um, and so, you know, my career as a lawyer trained me a lot about detecting those kind of stories and trying to figure out how those stories work and what which are good stories and which are bad stories, which are the stories that help lift us up and which are the stories that tear us apart. Um, so that's definitely true. Um, and then, you know, my career as a technologist just prepared me a lot for thinking about technology itself as a kind of language. Um, so Taylor, uh, back to the linguistics point, um, I ended up sort of realizing that technology is not really, um, a sub branch of scientific investigation as we often think of it. It, It's, it's not at all. Technology is much closer to an art, which means that it's a way for us to express ourselves. 
It's a way for us to talk to the world. Um, you look at technologies like calendars, like philosophy, uh, uh, collective decision-making mechanisms, juries, legislatures, administrative agencies. Um, these are all really just ways for us to express how we think the world functions and what an idealized world is. So technologies are a way for us to embody our minds into the, into the universe, for us to make our minds tangible and for us to create exude, if you will, these mental images and models we have of the world and make them real. Um, it's, 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 it's the way we speak to the universe, the way we talk, we converse. Um, that's what technology really is, which goes back to the roots of the word. Technology literally, you know, means a discourse about art, about skill, about craft. Um, that's what technology is. And it is, in fact, ultimately a discourse, um, uh, speaking. Mm. That actually, I don't want to go into any spoiler territory here, but that connects to me for some of the overarching aspects in, in the Dandelion Dynasty of certain characters have a view of the world that they wish to impose upon the government structures. Yep. And they will go way to extremes. I think we all know who I'm talking about here, but they'll go way to extremes to make that vision the reality because they are convinced that this is the way society should be as you said it's like a, a representation of what we think the world should look like right so i think it's pretty clear that the dandelion dynasty does deal with that and what's interesting to me is the characters who are the movers and shakers in that way some of them could be viewed in a positive light and some in a negative light depending on your personal view when you read it Exactly. So you might you might think like, oh, this this is a this is you know a, the the right fight. You know, I can understand right. the sacrifices being made here. Whereas if you're coming from maybe another political spectrum or a way of viewing the world, you might be like, this is horrendous. They're ruining the world. <laughs> yes, I mean these are such fundamental um, commitments uh, that they they define these narratives, these models of the world define fundamentally societies as well as individuals, right? A society that is committed to um, the rule of law is in some ways making a statement about distrust of the individual, right? We don't want to have uh, any individual to have too much power, even if that person is the bestest person in the world, we, the wisest philosopher. We don't want that person to have all the power because we fundamentally don't trust people. It's a narrative of distrust that we have. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in, in some ways that kind of distrust may be, in fact, um, the best way for us to build a society that acknowledges everyone um, and, and protects everyone. We accept some degree of injustice in order to have the best chance of justice for everybody. Um, you know, we accept bureaucracies, we accept courts with their, um, uh, with lawyers making lawyerly arguments. We accept all this stuff. We accept that to some degree, the guilty will go free in order to protect all the rest of us, the, 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 the uh, most of the time. Um, a, a different society may well go in a different way. They may decide that it is, in fact, better to make sure that you just have a good king and give all the power to the wisest person. Um, and then you won't have all these inefficiencies and all of these mistakes. Um, and, uh, you know, 
historically we can argue until the end of time which model is better um, but these are fundamentally stories that we commit to. And so when we have a political disagreement, we can argue until we're blue in the face and it won't make any difference because too often we're focused on arguments about rationality when they're just rationalizations for deep stories that we're committed to. Um, it's ultimately all we believe in our stories and you can't change uh, the, the, the story that moves someone's heart. You just can't. Just hearing you talk about, you know, the sacrifices some people are willing to make pulled up scenes that hurt me <laughs> greatly. <laughs> so just have to say, yes, you did but, a really we, good job of showing that, you know. Yeah, series. but that's what we do. You know, when I was a lawyer, that's what I had to live through day after day. Um, I was told, you know, this is the system. The system is unjust in so many ways. And yet the story told was this is better than any other system you can come up with. It, it's it's terrible and it's awful and it kills so many people and it puts so many people in prison. Uh, but this is the best thing that we can do. It's better than any alternative. And I, I kept on asking, really, is that really true? Or is this a story that we've been told so many times that we just unquestionably, unquestioningly accept it? Um, yeah, I still ask those questions. You know, it's, it's hard. Well, I do have a two-part question for you. Uh, the first part is now that the, the, your full series is out and you've seen the reception, are you, uh, does, you, does it make you interested to try another project of that scale? And also, <laughs> when, it was, when it was finished, what did you do to celebrate? Or what was that like when it was finished? <clears throat> oh, my God. These are great questions <laughs> and so hard to answer. Um, let me tell you. Um, the Duncan Dynasty took me more than a decade to finish. Um, you know, uh, it took years to write the first book and then took even more years to write the last two books, which were actually written as one book. Um, just so this is not a spoiler. I, I've said this in many contexts already. Um, <clears throat> I planned for the series to be just three books and the last book ended up being very long and I just kept on writing it because more things came in and I had to write it. It needed to be that big. Um, it got so big that I ended up, um, um, I sent it to my editor when I was done and my editor told me that um, we can't publish this. We just can't, you know, you talk about technology, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, this is, this is what the, the two books look like. You know, mm -hmm. I I sent this in as one book, um, and so my my editor. So your editor was happy that day. <laughs> my editor, he he didn't even bother reading it. He just told me it's not publishable like this. But he said, "Look, you know, you talk about technology. We we don't have a technology to bind a book like that cheaply enough for this to be workable. We just can't. Um, you you can't make a book that thick and expect that it's going to hold together." <laughs> so we had to break the book into two pieces, but, um, you know, that's just one of the minor steps along the way. I, I mean, this series was all consuming. I mean, for 11 years, I wrote no novels. Um, I wrote a few short stories here and there, but everything else was this, this is, this is the thing that absorbed all of my, um, energy. And, you know, I joke with my agent sometimes that, I'm just like the worst client ever because I had this one thing and this is the one contract he negotiated and then I had nothing else for him to do for years and years. It's just, it's, I'm a terrible client. Um, and so do I want to go through that again? 
the answer is probably no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I have to say this. As much pain as it was to work on the series, you know, I often felt like I was one of those workers trying to sculpt the Sphinx, except I could only see about a square foot around me. And I could never get a sense of how the overall thing looked until I was done. So for three years, I had no idea what the thing was going to look like. I mean, that's that's a pretty tough way to live creatively. You're working on a day after day after day, and you have no idea if you're even like, if the thing's even lopsided, if it's going to work. Um, that's a hard way to live. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, tr trying to do that day after day and trying to keep yourself motivated and to not give up. Um, that's hard. So all that aside, I also want to say that, you know, I'm deeply grateful for having worked on the series because it's not often that you get a chance to work on some idea that big. You know, I conceived of this thing and for more than 10 years, I was absorbed in it day after day. I was so immersed in it at some point that I thought I knew the world of Dara better than I knew the real world. Um, you know, I, I, I knew how it worked better than the real world. I could, um, I wrote, you know, pseudo-scientific papers on the logograms, on the biology, on the on the history of the place as part of world building. I wrote these fake essays for myself so that I can do all the world building. Um, it was deeply fun, intellectually stimulating, and incredibly cool. Um, I mean, it's like, I felt like, you know, it's like Narnia. I opened this portal to another world and I was in it and I knew everything about it and I could explore it and it was like the coolest thing like I was the only one who knew um, what this world was like so I don't think you're going to be given a lot of ideas like that in a lifetime I, I think you know I got one um, and I spent 10 years on it I'm very grateful I got the chance to do it um, and I, I don't think I'll be greedy and ask for a, a few more of those <laughs> Um, if, if another one comes, you know, I'm not going to say no, but I'm not going to be greedy. Um, it may be that this is the only idea of that scope that I'll ever get. And if that's the case, so be it. I'll, I'll be fine with it. Mm. Yeah, I think just kind of going off of that, having put so much work into something, I've had a couple friends who were kind of wise to the series, like before it was cool. And they convinced me to read The Grace of Kings before it was cool. So I got to be part of that crowd, thanks to them. But, <laughs> but something I've noticed recently, and I mean this in the best way possible, is there's been an explosion of your series to the point where people that don't even read epic fantasy are like messaging me and being like, do you think I'd like this? And I'm like, I didn't even know you were interested in something of this scale, right? And That's amazing, yeah. So I think, I mean... I don't I think it's hard to point at one thing that would make this happen. But for someone who puts so much time and effort into something and from my perspective looks like it's maybe finally bearing fruit to a larger scale, do you think there's something that was a catalyst for this or something that helped this along or is it just serendipitous I, or I, I can't really um say it's not it's not necessarily one thing or another. I mean, you know, um I'll answer this in two ways. One is, you know, um, I'm super happy that people are reading the series and enjoying it, you know, like you and and and, and telling me uh, what they found in the in the books that resonate 
with them. And uh, I, I love hearing that. I love hearing people's stories and how their stories resonate with the Denver Dynasty and why they enjoy it. Um, you know, I had somebody who was an inmate and, and he wrote to me and said, you know, just he he was feeling so depressed in prison and, and reading The Grace of Kings really got him through a lot of the dark times. And, you know, I was so moved by that. And I've had people who, who tell me about, you know, they're sailing the Pacific and, and this is the series that they read um, during the times when they weren't battling the storms and, and how the the series became a metaphor for them in that way. And I love that. Um, just I, these stories just make me so happy. Um, I will also say, though, that um, these are bonuses for me, having people respond to the series and, and really enjoying them telling me why that's that's a huge bonus for me but it's not actually the reason i wrote it um the the best way i can describe it is you know i i, I mean i'm just not a very good commercial writer i guess in that sense that i i didn't write the series because i thought the book would the series would do well commercially i wrote it because i thought it's a cool thing that i wanted to do like it's like you know you're a kid and you're out there and you suddenly saw a dragon flying in the sky and nobody else saw it and you're like i saw a dragon you know that's so cool i'm gonna go home and paint a picture of it so everyone else can see it because no one else got to see it that's basically how i felt i i saw this vision of dara and i was like this is so cool um i i get to talk about all the things i want to talk about and i get to tell the story that i love i'm gonna just write it and share it with people and even if nobody else in the world thought this was cool I, I'll still be like, I got to see a dragon. I climbed through that hole in the closet and I got to Narnia and I wrote an account about it and I brought it back. Even if no one else enjoyed it, it doesn't matter. I got to see the dragon. I got to Narnia and, and I'm gonna, I wrote about my account there and that's enough. So to me, that's enough. And the fact that readers actually enjoy it is just a huge bonus to me. It's, it's just unexpectedly wonderful. Um, and as far as, um, you know, what caused it, I don't really know what caused it, if, if there is even a singular cause. I will say that it's clearly um, the case that after the series was done, or, you know, when it was on the verge of being done, the fact that a lot of booktubers and bookstagrammers um, ended up enjoying it and, and posting about it, including yourself, I think that helps a lot. I think, you know, in this day and age, when a lot of us get our recommendation from social media and from YouTube or Instagram or whatnot. Um, it is important to engage with readers that way and to have, I'm deeply grateful to have folks who enjoy the books and wanted to talk about them and to explain their own feelings and to tell stories about the books. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I feel very lucky that, that that happened and that there were uh, readers who, who, who did that for me. Um, and I'm sure that helped generate a lot of interest in the series. So I have no doubt that mattered. Um, and a lot of it had to do with my wife, Lisa, who, you know, is skilled with Instagram in a way that I can never be. And she helped me, um, you know, try to connect with Instagram and to sort of allow me to see that there are readers out there responding to it. Um, and that I'm sure helped a huge deal too. Um, so I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's a combination of good luck and just uh, the, the, the moment um, uh, and, and the fact that there were so many wonderful uh, 
booktubers and, and bookstagrammers who are willing to share their love of the series. Um, and I think it's the confluence of all those wonderful things. Mm. Very rarely yeah. is it one thing, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you speak at universities and conferences about a variety of topics. Is there a certain topic that you enjoy most when you uh, visit universities or conferences? So the topic I enjoy talking about the most these days is actually um, uh, about the uh, about the power of storytelling and what I think stories are about and, and why stories are important for building a sustainable future, right? Because, you know, as as writers and artists, we're often faced with this question, which is, what is the point of any of this? You know, um, the, the, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I spend a, a decade of my life doing this, writing this story. What good is it really? It's not going to cure anybody's disease. It's not going to feed the hungry. It's not going to um, reduce carbon emissions. It, it's not going to do any of those things. Uh, and concretely, um, you know, uh, in terms of how much money I made from it, um, not a whole lot. I made a lot more money as a lawyer, let me tell you that. <laughs> so, you know, so people are like, what is the value of this? You know, how do I hold my head up at, you know, reunions, at high school reunions? How do I face the music when people ask you, what is it that you bring to society? What do you do? You know, um, <laughs> and and my my answer has always been that I don't think artists should try to defend themselves in on instrumentalist grounds. I, I don't really believe that those defenses work. So oftentimes, you know, people would say, well, art is important because it makes you a better human being. Is there any evidence of that and proof of that? Um, people would say, well, stories are so important because, um, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood is such a big industry and they, they depend on you uh, telling these stories and they make a lot of money. Okay, well, uh, that may be, I, I'm, I'm a very tiny piece of that. And Hollywood as a whole is a very tiny piece of the economic picture. So I don't like trying to justify art on the grounds of measurable value. Um, what I tell people is, um, so the topic I enjoy lecturing and talking to people about is let's, let's, let's examine really what, what our stories are about and why do we love them so much? And my conclusion is that humans are wired to understand the world through stories. I mean, I've already given a hint of this in the way we talk about it. Um, our deepest ethical commitments, our deepest beliefs, the ones that allow us, that make us willing to die for them, they're not justified on pros and cons. They're not justified by calculating the value of, of doing this versus not doing this. It's, it's just not. We do something because they fit into a fundamental story we hold dear. The way we're, we understand what it means to be brave is based on childhood memories of somebody sticking up for us on the playground. The way we understand love is related to the way our parents and grandparents loved us. And the way we understand pain is related to the way they hurt us when we were little. It's, that's, it's, it's all fundamentally about these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. Um, and I, my defense for art is that because we are wired to understand the world through stories, stories, telling stories, understanding stories, reflecting stories, 
that's a fundamental part of what it means to be a human being in the same way that loving someone is a fundamental part of being a human being in the same way that sacrificing ourselves for our children is a fundamental part of being a human being it's just who we are that's all there is to it i don't need to defend it um no more than you need to defend or justify why you love your wife or your children or your parents well, what's what's there to justify i don't need to defend any of it it's a thing that I enjoy doing because it's part of being human. That's all. It's interesting to hear you say that because for me, what comes to my mind when people ask me to justify my hobby or whatever, you know, the question may be about, you know, why do you spend all this time doing free stuff for books? You know, because everything Steve and I do is basically free. Well, you mm -hmm. know, most of the time free. And people ask, well, why do you spend all these hours doing this? And for me, I always think of the fact that pretty much it's a universal human condition that when you're done with work or whatever you do, even if your work is art-based, you consume art, you consume media. That's just what we do. So it bothers me when people ask you to justify something that we exactly. all participate in. Every exactly. single person watches TV. Every single person engages with media. So why do we mm -hmm. universally pardon my French, but shit on it. Yeah, I <laughs> agree. It's a societal thing we do, you know? Exactly. Well, we're not just little machines to increase the GDP. We're not, <laughs> you know, human beings are not fundamentally built to increase the GDP. And, and, and you, can, you, can, you can measure that all you want, but at the end of the day, what we really want is to gossip with our friends, to hug our <laughs> loved ones and to watch and read and tell and share a good story. That's all there is. This is this is what being a human being is about. Um, and, uh, you know, I enjoy being part of that deeply human uh, practice of storytelling. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't feel like I need to justify any more than that it makes me happy. Beautiful said. So we did have a couple of questions that were submitted by other readers that posted uh, just a couple of questions. Uh, so the first one's from M. And M said, not having a philosophy background, I would like to know if the, philosoph the philosophies of Dara have roots in actual philosoph philosophical thought from that region or time of which he has based his books. Um, so, um, uh, so a couple of things. One is that um, the books are not actually based on any specific thing. The first book is a fantasy reimagining of the Chuhan contention. And so in the same way that if you were to do Greco-Roman punk, you would have a book that lays out the history of the Roman Republic and then you do your own thing with it. So that's 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 um, how the books are based on, on history. Only the first book actually is a fantasy retelling. Um, and secondly, as far as the philosophies of Dara are concerned, um, some of them are very obviously mappable to some version of uh, classical East Asian philosophy. So for example, moralism can be seen as an analog of Confucianism, but it's not really because it's really an amalgamation of Confucianism and Neo-Confucianism. And, and so um, sometimes people get confused and they think Confucianism is, is one thing. It's not. Uh, Confucianism as a philosophical tradition went through thousands of years of evolution and division and reinterpretation and transformation so that by the time you get to neo-confucianism a much later branch um it's almost like a completely different philosophical school from confucianism as understood by confucius itself 
moralism is equally complex and it reflects contributions from Confucianism, Neo-Confucianism, and um, some of the later traditions from uh, Republican times. Um, similarly, something like Fluxism can be seen as a kind of direct analog of Taoism, but also not really, uh, because there's some Noism thrown in there, and a little bit of uh, 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 modern uh, American transcendentalism in there. Um, so people have noted that Thoreau and Emerson and Annie Dillard, these uh, individuals uh, of the American transcendentalist movement, often their writing um, writings have a Taoist flavor to them. Now, we have no idea if Thoreau and Emerson were ever familiar with Taoism and, and whether that influenced them in any way. So I don't particularly uh, think it matters. Um, but it is true that um, the American transcendentalist writers, uh, who are among my favorite writers, feel to me philosophically compatible with Taoism. So Fluxism incorporates a lot of Taoism, but also a lot of American transcendentalism. Um, so I guess my point would be that um, I don't think it's particularly interesting um, to uh, compare what I did with the historical analog because I start out with the historical analogs, but I'm not very interested in copying them. I'm interested in appropriating them to do something different that they were never meant to do. Um, I'm much more interested in the punk part of silk punk than the silk part, I guess. Yeah. And we do have a, a question from our friend Esme. Uh, her first question was, what was your experience like going from being a short story author to writing this massive and ambitious epic historical fantasy series? Did it come naturally or were you certain writing hurdles that you would have to overcome? Um, I mean, I think a lot of writers have said that writing is fractal. So whatever skills you learn at the short form can be reapplied and, and, and transformed and applied um, for longer Forms. And I think that is true. But at the same time, I also think there were lots of things about novels, especially epic fantasy novels, that I just didn't quite understand until I tried to write one. Um, and I had to learn on the fly how to do it. One of them is the nature of plot. Um, plot is something that you can get away with not worrying about as a short story writer. A lot of short stories have no plot whatsoever. Um, you, I mean, I've written a bunch of them. Uh, if you read the Paper Menagerie and other stories, one of the first stories in there is called The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species. And that story has no plot of any kind. It is a pseudo ethnographical account of alien species and their books. Um, and there's no story, there's no plot. Um, you just, you can, you just, with short stories, you can get away with having no plot. And I think I, as somebody who enjoys writing stuff that challenges assumptions, um, wrote lots of stories with no plot whatsoever. But when I went to write epic fantasy, I realized that plot is like air. You, you have to have it, otherwise the reader loses steam. The, the reader can't go on if there's no plot. It's just it's just unreadable without it. Um, and I had to learn Surprise. how to plot. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, <laughs> Um, well, not just that, the writer loses steam too. The writer has no interest in writing <laughs> if there's no <laughs> I didn't really understand that until I tried to write one. And then I was like, oh, this is, this is way harder than I thought because there's no plot here. <laughs> um, so I had to learn how to do that. Um, and um, luckily, you know, it's one of those things where you can learn 
to plot in pieces. Um, for for the Ways of Kings, I plotted it as a bunch of novellas, essentially all lumped together um, into a bigger story, um, and that was a way to do it. Uh, and starting with the Wall of Storms, I could do more traditional plots that are actually end to end. Um, and so, um, you know, it's 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 a big challenge that I have to learn how to do. Um, but it was fun. Uh, by the time I got to the last book, of course, you know, the plot went way more elaborate. I mean, talk about having no plot and then having overplot. You know, in some ways, the the, the last books were overplotted. The plot was so big that you know when the story was finally published, we had to chop the book down the middle. And, you know, that's why the end of the Veil Throne felt like no end at all. It literally ends in the middle of, of everything. You're just like, what? You know, what was that? <laughs> um, so that was that was kind of cool. Learned that whole experience and that whole technique. Um, I, I definitely enjoyed that too. And it was very humbling to realize that there's this entire part of, of storytelling that I didn't really understand um, and I had to sort of really get up to speed as I was mm -hmm. doing it. Uh, Esme's other question was, uh, this this series is chock full of beautiful, beautiful and thought-provoking passages that deeply resonated with me or challenged me with its themes and messages. But now I'm wondering, what is the one message you hope people take away from your series? Um. I don't know if there is one necessarily um, that I can reduce it down to. I, I guess I will say this. Um, if, if nothing else, if you read the series and you enjoyed it or, or didn't enjoy it, if there's one thing I want you to remember from it afterwards, um, it's, it's this idea that um, you should do the most interesting thing. Um, I think, you know, uh, all the characters in the books go through this, and which is their recognition of their own mortality and understanding that they get to live this one life and just it's an experiment there there are no safe path there just aren't um maybe not in the ancient world and certainly not in the modern world um there there is no such thing as a guaranteed path to success um you can follow all the cliches and all the paved ways that people laid out before you and and it's not going to be a guarantee of success and happiness at all um but on the other hand if you do the thing that's most interesting to you at the moment and follow the most the thing that you're passionate about your chances of succeeding are much higher because even if you don't succeed in the conventional sense at least you were doing things that gave you a lot of joy along the way and that you cannot substitute for it's much better to do something that you're excited about and then try to struggle to figure out a way to make money from it than the other way around, which is to think that you're going to make money and now you're not excited about stuff you're doing at all. Yeah, I needed I needed you on my side when I said I was going to major in linguistics. <laughs> my dad was like, um, sorry, what? What are you going to do with that? Um, <laughs> but, but I love I love hearing you say that because when Cooney says that in the first book, it never left my brain. And I've actually found myself saying that to myself in real life like when i'm not sure what to do i'm like well what's more interesting like do the most like that quote really i'm i, I can't you, believe that what, i got the main takeaway <laughs> that's that, what i, I do that's away. what i do mm -hmm. i i i I, yeah. I you know i think i think we undervalue excitement you know again you know we teach our children and we teach ourselves to be productive and to make decisions based on pros and cons but 
the biggest pro of them all. Are you excited about what you're trying to do? We never account for it. We don't, we don't have a way of measure it. We don't have a way of reducing to dollars, to grades, to something. Um, but ultimately, what, what are you choosing to do other than excitement? I mean, think about how many decisions in your life are based on that. Like how you ended up with the person who was your best friend, how you ended up settling in the city you settled, how you ended up with your spouse. It's, it's because you were excited. That's really it. And it's, it's, that's so much more important than any other criterion, but you know. And uh, another question from Vesme was, are there any, are there any characters in the series that were inspired by people in your own life? Mm. I would say all of them are, um, because, you know, as a novelist, you, you don't really write characters entirely out of whole cloth. You're always taking your own experience of real life and of, of how you understand people and how you model them in your heads. That's how you understand human nature. And of course, when you're writing characters, you just end up drawing on that knowledge. Um, for example, all the uh, teacher types in the books, you know, Luanzia or Gia, even in the moments when she's trying to teach, um, they're drawn from teachers, uh, teachers I love and teachers I didn't really click with. And, and they're based on, you know, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I think is really fascinating, which is the degree to which teachers are very important to us. And yet, we in the modern world, especially in the West, don't really have a good language for talking about it. Um, you know, it's striking that a, a Japanese word like sensei has entered the English lexicon because, again, you know, East Asian cultures often have a deep um, uh, meditation and, and set of, of, of cliches and tropes and values associated with the teacher-student relationship that isn't entirely absent from here in the West, but just don't get the kind of emphasis. We treat teachers often as transactional um, uh, actions. We, we treat them as just doing the job, but it's not just the job. Like, you know, in East Asian society in particular, teaching is a calling. It's a very important thing. This is not merely a job. To be a teacher gives you the same status as being a parent. It's very, very important. Um, and so, you know, the Dendon dynasty is very much about that conception of, of teachers. And, you know, I, I wrote teachers um, with a great deal of affection and love and a lot of memories of teachers who made a difference in my own life. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're based on that. So, um, you know, uh, there some teachers are from elementary school and others are from law school. I mean, I, I, I feel very lucky that I've had wonderful teachers throughout um, one of the most important figures in my life was, um, you know, a law school professor. And then the judge who I clerked for, um, they were teachers to me and they were incredibly important in forming my own ideas about what life should be like, this model I have about the way the world ought to be. And then I wanted to convey some of that in, in the books, um, in, in my characters. Um, and so that's why the teacher-student relationship plays such a central role in the book. Yeah, Luan is a precious bean, and every time he was on page, I was like, "I love, I love this man." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so he tried. He tried. Through. He did. He very much did. And you know, without saying spoilers, the the teacher student relationship he has with a certain character was just so heartwarming, and I couldn't get enough of it. So I can say that that comes through mm -hmm. <laughs> for sure. Thank you. And you know, I I, I had her honor that even at uh, you know at the mm -hmm. very end 
right? You know, uh, that, that this is, this is, this is how tradition gets passed down, that you pass it forward, you know, you, you were taught well, and now it imposes on you an obligation to teach those who come after you well. Mm -hmm. Well, we have uh, three more questions for you. I'd like to finish off with some, some funner questions. Um, the first one is, do you have a favorite family recipe? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite family recipe. My grandmother was a great cook, and unfortunately, she passed away before I could really learn how to cook from her. So I have memories of the wonderful food that she made, but I never learned how to do it from her. Um, we have created some new family traditions. Um, my daughters are great bakers, and so mm -hmm. we do have um, a favorite muffin recipe that they like nice. to use and that they alter and substitute and change uh, every time they bake. Um, and I, I, I act as their sous chef in those moments. Uh, and, and so I like, I like their muffin recipe a lot. That would be my favorite. What's a, what kind of muffin is it? Uh, so they sometimes do chocolate chip and sometimes they do uh, uh, blueberry and sometimes they do raspberry. Uh, they change it all the time. Uh, but every time they do it, it's, it's very good no matter what they put in there. Yes. Raspberry muffins don't get enough love. They have good They sense. don't. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next one is, uh, I always think it's interesting to learn what everyone's first job was. I think you learn a lot about someone when you learn about what their first job was. What was mm -hmm. your first job? Okay, so depending on how you define it. Um, if you're talking about job job, as in, you know, I could imagine it's a career, um, then it was um, working at Microsoft as uh, a, a software engineer. Um, and, uh, but if you're talking about job as in, you know, the first thing where you did something and people paid you, uh, this would have to go back to high school. Um, I worked for a local bank as their filing clerk. Uh, it was my job to take the checks that came into the bank that day and file them to the different accounts. Uh, and it was also my job to shred papers to do all the sort of office work that teenagers were hired to do, um, which these days are done by machines. Um, riveting, so. riveting work. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I actually enjoyed that job a lot because I remember how, how fun it was for me to observe all the back office workers and my coworkers and to sort of just hear them, you know, it was the first time I ever worked in an office. It was my introduction to office culture, right? So I learned about what office birthday parties are like and what it meant for coworkers to be gossiping and, and to have to deal with office politics. And for a lot of it, I was just an observer, but it was an incredibly wonderful introduction to it. So I could sort of see how this worked and, and, and get some real life experience about what it's like to be in an office. So I have very fond memories of it. Um, I think it's fantastic. And something that I always like to ask our guests is if the roles were reversed and you were in our position, was there a question that you would have asked that we did not ask? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. I really love that. Um, um, I guess um, what I would ask is, you know, um, what is the thing that excites you now? And, and what is the project you're working on that gets you excited? Um, and I would answer by saying that, um, I'm very excited by uh, a recent turn in um, short fiction that I'm writing. Um, so for the longest time, uh, my short fiction, especially the sci-fi stuff, um, was described as dystopian. 
or, or pessimistic, which I never understood because they were full of hope in my view. I mean, they may be describing horrible things, but ultimately it's always about how humans are awesome creatures and that there's hope that, you know, no matter how terrible things are, we can make it better. Um, so I always thought I was very optimistic, but a lot of readers don't seem to agree about it and say how depressing my stories are, which I'm like, no, there's plenty of hope. Uh, but more recently, I've had a turn in the way I write stories, and I, I think I'm now just more explicitly optimistic in a way that I wasn't before. So I've realized that it's just actually terrible to write um, stories that are dystopian, because dystopian stories are, in some ways, um, not terribly interesting anymore, because real life is so dystopian in some ways that telling dystopian stories just doesn't really work for me anymore. So I've turned to writing more optimistic stories. And in some ways, they're more fantasy-like, I guess. You know, um, in the past, I might write a story about the terrible power that centralized technology imposes over us. And now I'm just sort of like, you know what? Um, how about imagine a witch, a modern-day witch who can um, work against all this technology and make us feel more human. Maybe she's a, she's a techno mage. She has a way of helping us figure out how to turn technology into something humanizing rather than dehumanizing. I mean, it's it's fantasy. Um, it's it's magical thinking. But so what? The the fundamental point here is the stories shape our values. The more positive stories that put out there, I can't help but think that it's going to make people also more optimistic and hopeful and maybe that will make all of us tell ourselves better stories. And since technology is just another way for us to tell stories to each other, maybe this will lead to more positive and hopeful technology. So, you know, this is something I'm very excited about and, and, and trying to tell narratives about technology that are more hopeful, more in line with my vision. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly don't want to take too much of your time, but just one thought that that sparked for me was in previous conversations, uh, it has come up multiple times <laughs> about the trend in not just fantasy, but media in general, but, you know, a lot of us read fantasy, so it tends to skew that way, but uh, talking about the rise of grimdark and the darker stories in recent years and how recently we've seen a shift towards cozy fantasy. Mm -hmm, uh, more mm -hmm. more positive stories, legends and lattes being a you mm -hmm. know like the prime example of that, and yep. you discussed how that seems to. I every time we talk about this, I say I have zero empirical evidence, <laughs> but it <laughs> seems to uh, relate very closely to the times that we're living in, um, and people just want something that isn't nihilistic. That oh, doesn't absolutely. explore that that part of the human nature, uh, and absolutely. I think hearing you say that sounds like yeah. right on that same trend. So, yeah. so let, let me tell you a little bit about my what's you know propelled me in this direction. Um, I I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which you know automation and computerization and this growing complexity in our society, why it's making so many of us so unhappy, and 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 you know I'm. I'm not sure I have the right answer, but I have one answer, which is this. Um, we're much too focused on one particular type of threat, which is loss of jobs. Um, that is certainly an important problem, but it's not, it's not 
the only problem and focusing on it alone neglects a whole host of other problems that we really need to pay attention to. And so let me give you some examples. Um, one of the consequences of automation and, and, and this increasing way in which we're trying to turn people into machines, right? Um, automation is not just about having machines do the job of machines, do the job of humans, but also turning humans to force them to behave more like machines. So if you're working customer service, you have to follow a script. Um, if you're working a warehouse, you have to follow where the computer tells you to go and which boxes to pick. I mean, it's to get all of us to behave more like machines, more like components in a system. Um, part of the consequence of that is um, the, the broken steering wheel problem, right? Which is this, it's the sense of loss of control. Um, humans, need feedback, need the sense that we're making a difference in the world, right? So if you're an assembly line worker, the job you do is very boring, but at the end of the day, you can point to a stack. Give it a minute to catch up. A stack of what? I must know. Uh, okay. okay, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. so when I was working at the bank, right, um, at the end of the day, you know, it started out with a bin full of checks. At the end of the day, the checks have all gone into little drawers in their little files. So I know I did something. Like I can say I spend a day doing mindless work, but at the end of the day, I did something. I made a difference. Okay. But in the modern age, a lot of our jobs are nothing like that. Okay, a lot of our jobs give us a sense of total loss of control. So I was a lawyer for many years. And as a lawyer, do you know what you do? You, you write memos. I wrote many memos. Some of these memos took me weeks of research and hard work. I pass it up to a senior associate who gave it to some partner. And then I don't know if it made any difference whatsoever. Did that change anything? Did it convince anybody? Did it change the outcome of of the trial did it do anything like those of those of us who work in knowledge uh industries know this you 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 work hard over something and you put all of yourself into it and you make some argument you pass it on and then you're like that's it you know <laughs> did, did it make any difference what screaming did I into do? the void right <laughs> yes. so that's it's 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 the sense that you're, um, you're, you know, as a kid, you pretend you're driving, right? You're moving the steering wheel and nothing is happening. It's the broken steering wheel. It's very demoralizing. The other problem we have in modernity um, is uh, this uh, loss of uh, faith in our mission or mission doubt. So all of us are happier as human beings when we believe what we're doing is aligned with some higher purpose, with something that we really believe in. Um, but that's increasingly hard to to fathom because the purpose of what we do is growing more abstract right if you work for facebook let's say right and you're like one of the smartest programmers in the country and you're there to put your brilliant mind in the service of this corporation whose mission is to serve more ads to people how how can you really believe in your mission when that's the case, right? There's something deeply disconcerting that so many of our brilliant minds are being pushed to serve on missions that they don't really believe in. 
um, or they have trouble believing it. Or you know, your 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 job is to make the trading algorithms function faster, so you can exploit smaller um, uh, uh, inefficiencies and make more money. And what what exactly have you done here? What exactly did you accomplish? Can you believe in this mission? So I think a lot of us are suffering from mission doubt and from from this sense of broken steering wheel up and down, you know, no matter what your political commitments are, your economic status, your, your, your position, this sort of thing is happening more and more because more and more jobs are being automated, abstracted. Everything is turned into a set of symbols upon symbols upon symbols. It's all discourse now, right? So we have this experience of postmodern loss of, of, of direct feedback and of purpose. Um, so I think that's why we're now yearning more and more for stories that satisfy both our belief that we can still affect the world and that we can also affect the world positively. We, we now want these stories more than ever. Um, in a time when you can still have real feedback and, and, and believe in your own purpose, maybe these stories are not as critical and you can think about dystopian stories more. But now more than ever, we, we really yearn for these stories because our real lives are so spinning out of control, you know? Mm. So that's, that's, that's why I'm committing so much more to writing stories that are to me, um, more about sustainable values, more about humanistic values, more about upholding those things and trying to tell a positive story about technology, because again, technology itself is not good or evil. It's just a language. It's just a way for us to speak. Um, and, and there are stories we can tell with that are positive. That's like the best description I've heard of that discussion that we've had over all the times we've had it. We've had it several oh times gosh. too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. So, Ken, I want to thank you so much. I know we know you're busy. We want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Um, if anyone's looking to to find you online or to connect with you, where's the best place to find you? So the best place would be to go to my website, which is kenliu, K-E-N-L-I-U, dot name. Uh, you can go to dot com, but dot name is cooler because, you know, I was one of those people who signed up for a dot name domain back when it was thought <laughs> that individuals would have their websites that way. Um, but I, I have that. So you can go to my website and um, sign up for my newsletter. Uh, and whenever I have a new story or a new novel or something, I'll announce it there. So that's a great way to stay in touch with me. Um, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, K-Y-L-I-U-99, um, and, or on Instagram. Although the Instagram account is really run by my wife, not me. Uh, but you can certainly stay up to date with my projects on there. It's, it's uh, kenlu.author, I think. Um, and uh, the uh, finally, uh, the one project I wanted to uh, talk about, didn't get a chance to talk about it, but um, AMC took a bunch of my short stories uh, in The Hidden Girl and other stories and turned it into a TV show called Pantheon, which is about the singularity and uploaded consciousness, consciousnesses and how um, that challenges the idea of being human. You know, what does it mean when you're uploaded into the cloud? Like, you know, we always, we always talk about how, you know, the dream of technology is to live forever, allow us to upload ourselves into the cloud and live as gods, you know, wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, but what does that actually mean? Like, you know, if that happened, are we really human anymore? And if we're not, what are we? 
Um, that's what the show was about, uh, Pantheon. Uh, Craig Silverstein, who is the showrunner, um, is just fantastic. He took my stories and then just build them out into this wonderful world and it's a great show i saw the first season um i got to uh, a sneak peek at it and it's just really cool and the premiere happens um september 1st on mm -hmm. amc um, so amc plus so um i hope people check it out it's, it's very cool well, congratulations that's that awesome. fantastic thank you well, wow. you just got me excited for it so i'm gonna be googling <laughs> I hope that you check it out. yeah get it up here really yeah happy. Yeah, awesome. it's wonderful. And Taylor, if uh, anyone wants to connect with you, where's the best place to find you? Well, uh, my booktube channel, Made Between the Pages, uh, spelled M-A-E-D, not M-A-D-E. That's, you know, not intuitive at all, so I like to make that clear. <laughs> uh, so you can always find me there. I always respond to comments. Uh, the other platform where I'm most active would be Twitter. Uh, I talk about books all the time on there. I nerd out about them all the time. Uh, I would say, besides that, you can find me on the Page Chewing podcast that Steve, uh, myself, and PL do, which is on Spotify or really anywhere that you get podcasts. You can um, find out about me there. You can also read my reviews on Before We Go blog. I am an assistant editor there, so I write reviews for that um, SFF blog all the time, uh, run by Beth Tabler trying to think if i've forgotten anything because i always forget at least one <laughs> what what's your uh twitter username because uh i don't think you gave that oh right what is my twitter? i think it's it couldn't be the full length so it's m-a-e-d made and then between is hyphenated to b-t-w-n <laughs> and then pages <laughs> Okay, so good. it's a very truncated version, <laughs> um, but I will be sure to have the link in all of my descriptions. Yep. So if you, right. if that's hard to, to Google, you can find that in any description on any of my videos. Um, yeah. And maybe in this one as well, if Steve's kind enough to put it there. <laughs> and uh, my, my Twitter is K-Y-L-I-U-99. Um, it's also mm -hmm. not very intuitive, but it's just, so <laughs> I've always used that. So. We get what we get, you yeah. know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks to both of you so much for, for spending time, you know, taking time of your day to, to chat with us. Hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you Absolutely. so much for having me. Uh, real pleasure to be here, Steve. And, and thank you, Taylor, for chatting with me. This is so cool. Thank you to both of you. Yeah, I bullied my way in and I'm glad yeah. I'm here. So. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here, too. We're all glad you're here. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.